Man, y'all had Dr. Joel Kim last week, president of Westminster Seminary. I think Pastor Harold's coming back next week, and so I'm stuck between two giants. I'm what's called the um, appreciation pastor, right? So uh, Dr. Kim, he's like the impressive, drop that name, people want to show up, and then you bring in Michael, and then next week you're like so grateful that Harold is back. And so uh, I'm going to do my job and be the appreciation pastor. So you are more grateful for your amazing staff here. Pastor Jimmy, thank you for that introduction. And yeah, it's true. Um, I'm from Georgia. And so as I get excited, you'll hear my southern accent come out. I will say y'all. It's one of the most efficient words in the English language. Um, But I'm originally from Georgia. made it out here uh, to go to USC. And um, when I went to SC, I was uh, really zealous about finding a home church. And so I used to visit like two churches a Sunday all throughout Southern California to find a church to call home. Uh, Well, the first time I visited CPC, your partner church, um, I knew this place was special. Uh, It was filled with amazing people and an unwavering commitment to gospel-centered ministry. And so from that first Sunday, I wanted to, to plant roots. I built amazing relationships. I was so grown and equipped through that ministry. And even though God called me elsewhere, actually Pastor Jimmy poached me elsewhere uh, to serve in a different ministry, it's been such a joy for me to see how God has grown uh, you here at CCSC in so many ways uh, throughout the year. So thank you for having me. Um, on top of that, I'm just really blessed by the staff here. Uh, I have so much affection and respect for your ministry and your leaders. Uh, Like Jimmy shared, uh, we did ministry together for over a decade. Um, He's been a mentor of mine, my personal pastor, and he's forever uh, dear to my heart. Uh, Pastor Daniel, a.k.a. Dinko, he and I, we used to serve in a worship ministry together. And so we would go to different campuses, do conferences and retreats, love him as a bass player. And so I have amazing memories with him and eating all-you-can-eat barbecue and Cerritos. And uh, lastly, Pastor Harold. Man, he has been uh, such an amazing example and a role model for me as a young pastor navigating my way through the challenges of ministry. And so I'm so grateful uh, to Pastor Harold. Now, speaking of challenges, if I were to ask you, what is the greatest challenge facing the church today? Okay, how would you respond? What's the greatest challenge facing the church today? Some people might say it's it's an intellectual challenge of skepticism or naturalism and and secularism. Others might say it's more ethical. It's It's a problem of racism and bigotry in the church. Uh, Others might think that, you know, the greatest challenge for the church is just for us to stay relevant. You know, we feel so irrelevant, and and especially in this postmodern American culture, how does the church retain its voice and relevance? Uh, Others might simply say, our problem challenges, we don't read our Bibles, y'all don't pray. And if we would just do that, everything would be good. Now, I actually believe the greatest challenge facing our church today is not merely a lack of knowledge. And it's not merely a deficient ethic. Rather, it's a misunderstanding of discipleship. It's a misunderstanding of what it truly means to follow Jesus. You see, too many of us in the church, we have adopted a synthetic version of what it means to follow Christ. And by synthetic, I mean we're guilty of making a man-made, watered-down version of discipleship that no longer reflects the call of Jesus. And so rather than serve we consume. And rather than obey, we ignore. And and rather than follow, we compromise. 
But that's so true for too many of us. Brothers and sisters, faithfully responding to the call of Christ is the greatest need in the church today. For when we truly understand biblical, Christ-centered discipleship, man, it's the fountainhead of the Christian life. We start to follow Jesus, and as we follow Jesus, we begin to become like him. We begin to love the things that he loves. We begin to obey the Father in joy. We begin to live out mercy and justice in our lives and in our communities, and we begin to speak truth in love. And all of this comes from abiding in Christ and genuinely following him. The title of today's message is this, The Call to Follow. The call to follow, and our text today is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. Okay, and so if you have your Bibles, as you turn there, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. And uh, there are three points to the sermon. I'm, I'm a three-point giver. My church is used to that. If I ever go two, they get, they get shook, right? And if I don't give the three points at the top, they can't pay attention. So the three points are this. First, we're going to look at the arrival of the call. Okay, the arrival of the call. Second, the nature of the call. And finally, how we must respond to the call, okay? So the arrival, the nature, and our response to the call of Christ. And so let's get into God's word. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. We'll begin with there. May God bless the reading of his holy and matchless word. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Amen. In our passage today, we have the first words of Jesus as recorded in the gospel of Mark. Now, we are a people, we love and remember our firsts. We'll never forget our first job and the joy, right, or the disappointment of that first paycheck, right? If you're a parent with children, you cherish and you remember the first words of your children and and you long to capture the first steps on recording on camera. Everyone everyone remembers their first love and their first kiss. Um, I have to confess that my first kiss wasn't at the wedding altar. I know, oh, so scandalous, Pastor Mike, right? Uh, Don't tell my wife she's not here today, right? My first kiss happened in high school. And I was so nervous. It was my first relationship, and I'd never kissed a girl before, right? But I knew, I knew. I was like, if I play it right, right, if my game is on, I'm going to be able to kiss this girl. And so I planned it out, mapped it out, like where we would go to eat, and we'd be at a park and X, Y, and Z. And I even practiced like the angle of where I'm going to tilt my head. And I'm so like ESTJ, that's my Myers-Briggs, right? And so I'm like practicing on the back of my hand to make sure I'm not too terrible. And when the time came to kiss my girlfriend for the very first time, it was so bad and so awkward that immediately afterwards, I just hugged her and I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I think out of pity, she said, it's okay. And the relationship soon ended. <laughs> all that to say, all that to say, we're a people who remember our firsts. And we should never forget Jesus' first words and the gospel of Mark. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark tells us, that Jesus had come to fulfill the ministry of John the Baptist, that Jesus had come to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies and the promises of God. Now this language of the kingdom 
It was a central idea to Israel. Whenever anyone spoke of the kingdom of God, the Jews' hearts would fill with hope and expectation. And here Jesus boldly declares that the kingdom of God was at hand. Now, in the English language, when we generally describe events, okay, when we're talking about events, right, uh, we use three basic tenses, right? We're basic here in America, right? It's either past tense, present tense, or future tense, right? There are other tenses, but we're not like intentionally using them, right? We're either past, present, or future. But in the Greek, there's a tense called the perfect tense, the perfect tense. And the perfect tense indicates an ongoing result, Okay, an ongoing result. It indicates a completed action with present and continuous significance. The most famous right, verse using the perfect tense in the Bible is Jesus at the cross and in his dying breath cries out, it is finished. It is finished. A completed action with present and ongoing significance. Well, here in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is using the perfect tense to describe the arrival of the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand. Now, now why does he do this and what does it mean? And it means that Jesus is telling Israel that the kingdom of God is no longer this future, distant hope, but now it is a reality. The kingdom of God is now a present reality. Now, to the Jews, that didn't make any sense. It was actually disappointing. Because to them, it didn't seem like the kingdom of God had come. Politically, Israel was still under Roman rule. So if the kingdom of God had come, where is their liberation? Spiritually, Israel had not experienced this major revival or renewal. So if Jesus is going to say the kingdom of God has come, where is the presence and glory of God? And finally, the effects of sin and death were still plaguing the world. If the kingdom of God had come, where is God's shalom? Where is God's shalom? But Jesus makes this radical announcement that the kingdom of God had come. Why? Because the king had come. And with the arrival of the king, we have the arrival of the call, which is for us to repent and believe in the gospel. Now, uh, this summer, I had the opportunity to take a brief uh, study leave, and I got to visit some churches I ordinarily wouldn't attend So I decided to visit some large churches, you know, kind of check out the competition or whatever it might be. Not competition, that's like very wrong. Um, Check out some large uh, ministries that were kind of quote unquote like trending upward and garnering a lot of attention in LA. I wanted to see like what all the fuss was about. Now I'm gonna like, I'm not gonna throw shade and drop any names, right? But as I sat through these services and I followed along and sung their songs or tried to sing their songs and listened to their preachers, and their presiders talk about God and salvation and our lives, I went away with great sadness. I went away with a lot of grief because people were being called to follow Jesus without being called to repentance. They were being called to trust in Christ with their entire lives, with all that they had, with all of their hope, without any confession of sin. And I realized something. I realized that the modern progressive church has replaced this language of sin and repentance with language of of sorrow and struggle. I don't know if you've noticed this, if you've visited any other churches, this is what so many churches have done. It's a subtle move to, to take out this language of sin, take out this call to repentance, and then more just talk about our struggles, our trials, our pains. And this was their main message. 
Life is tough. Life is difficult and we're all experiencing struggles and we're all experiencing storms. But God is with you. God loves you. God will never fail you, so hold on to him. Hold on to him with all that you have. Now, that's beautiful. And that is a powerful truth, but it misses the fundamental call of Christ. Jesus himself calls us not just to not just to give him our difficult circumstances, not just to ask him to be our hero and our rescue. Jesus calls us to repent and believe. Back in the early 1900s, the London Times, they sent out a question, question to the city through their newspaper asking, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? And many responded to this question, writing back to the newspaper with commentary on politics, on economics, on various wars and religion, all as explanations as to what was wrong with the world. But one Christian author by the name of G.K. Chesterton, he wrote back and he wrote this. He said, dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. I am what's wrong with the world. I am what's wrong with my community. I am what's wrong with my family and my marriage and my life. Brothers and sisters, do you see this and do you agree with this? Greater than the darkness we encounter in this world is the darkness within us. Greater than the sorrows you and I will face in life is the sin that we harbor in our hearts. Jesus is our Savior, not merely from difficult circumstances, Jesus will not merely save us from pain and hardship. He is our savior because he will save us from ourselves. He will pay our wages of sin through his death on the cross. And so this is why he calls us to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and believe for the good news of Jesus, of God has come in Jesus Christ. We are called to repent and believe. That is the call of Christ. That is the call of the gospel. Now, what does it mean practically to repent? It simply means to turn. It simply means to turn, to turn away from our sin, turn away from our pride, to turn away from our our idolatry. And this is very important because to repent of your sin doesn't mean that you're just sad about it. It doesn't mean that you're just sorry about it. It actually means that there is a change of direction in your life to turn away from your sins and to turn towards Jesus. What does it mean to believe? It means for us to place our faith, our trust, our entire dependence upon the person and work of Jesus. Right? To stop depending on ourselves, to stop trying to be our own hero, to stop trying to fix our own lives, but to realize that Jesus alone is able to save and to redeem and put our faith in him. This is the call to follow Christ, to turn away from sin in repentance and to turn towards Jesus in faith. That's the arrival of the call. That's the call of Christ. And let's, let's go to the next point now, to the nature of the call, and let's pick up at verse 16. Verse 16, it's going to go up on the screen as well. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets, and immediately he called them. Now read carefully. This is for real. 
And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Amen. This is the call of Jesus' first disciples. We just read Jesus' first words announcing the arrival of the kingdom and a call for us to repent and believe. And now we have Jesus' call of his first disciples. Now Mark's gospel, it's a gospel of action. Things happen quickly. Mark wastes no words. And so as you read this gospel, you'll encounter this word immediately. Immediately Jesus calls. Immediately disciples respond and follow him. And although Mark moves through this encounter with breakneck speed, I want us to kind of pause and reflect upon what's really going on. I just want to make two observations upon Jesus' encounter with his disciples. The first is this. We need to realize that the call to follow, though it's costly, though it's demanding, though it changes our direction and changes our entire lives, this call to follow is a call of grace. It's a call of grace. For Jesus to seek out his disciples, this was truly radical. This was truly countercultural to the Jews because for them in their culture, the young men were the ones who had to initiate. They were the ones who had to seek out their rabbis. They had to devote themselves to their training. They had to try and enter into these schools. Just as you and I often had to like, apply for jobs, apply to graduate programs and schools, and we're the ones seeking out mentors and wanting to be apprentices. The responsibility to initiate was on the disciple. But here in this passage, Jesus does the exact opposite. Jesus himself goes out and he seeks out his disciples. He's the one who goes out to the sea and he initiates this encounter, initiates this relationship with Peter, Andrew, James, and John. We must always remember that it is sheer grace to become a disciple of Jesus. These men, They had nothing, they had done nothing to merit the call. They had no qualifications to make themselves ideal disciples. Mark only tells us that they're fishing. He only tells us that they're sitting there with their dad and servants mending nets. Mark doesn't tell us about how religious they are, about how pious they are, right? About any of their gifts, any of their abilities, any of their righteousness. Mark tells us none of those things, but Jesus in his sheer grace calls them out. He approaches them and says, come, follow me. Brothers and sisters, this same call is issued to us as well. God doesn't test you and examine you and ask, what are your abilities? What will you contribute? What are your gifts? What are your qualifications? No, when he calls us unto himself, it's unconditional, right? It's a call of grace. We need to remember that. The second thing we need to realize is that this call is to a person, Jesus was not calling Peter, Andrew, James, and John to simply believe in a new doctrine, not to just accept a new idea or a new ethic. Jesus was calling them unto himself. What does Jesus say? He says, follow me. Follow me. It was immensely personal. Brothers and sisters, we have forgotten this truth. You see, we are so occupied trying to do the right Christian things. And if you're in a very conservative church, we're so occupied trying to learn and affirm the right doctrines or dogmas that we have forgotten the personal nature of following Jesus. Would you consider this question? Is Jesus more of an idea to you or is he a real person to you? Okay. Is Jesus an idea to you 
Or is he a person to you? In religion, you can agree with the idea of God. Right? Intellectually, you can learn new doctrines and affirm them and say, that makes sense. I agree it. I agree with it. We can even get excited. We can even get passionate about ideas. But here's the thing about ideas. They're easy to reject. They're easy to ignore. They're easy to disregard. Whereas a person is not. It's so much easier right, to displace an idea than it is a person. My friends, Jesus is not an idea. He's not just an ethic. He is a person, someone to be known, someone to be heard, someone to be followed. You guys know how powerful personal encounters are? I was recently like awakened to this reality uh, when I received a digital invitation to a wedding. Okay, I'm a little old-fashioned, right? I still like like paper invitations. I want to know that this bride and groom invests in me so they will pay the postage and send it, right? So when this person sent me a digital invitation, I was very like, I was very unimpressed, right? I was very unimpressed. And this guy was a pastor, and so maybe I should have shown him more mercy. Uh, but he was a friend, and he invited me to his wedding, but we weren't that close, okay? We weren't that close. And I know a lot of you guys, you think like all the pastors must be BFFs, but that's not for real, right? Uh, so we were not that close. And so the idea of me like attending another wedding was really unappealing. I checked my schedule. It was wide open, right? <laughs> wide open. But you know what I did? I clicked no, not attending, right? I clicked no, not attending. And I thought I was done. All good, right? Here's what happened, right? I saw him at another pastor's gathering like a couple weeks later. And this guy saw me. We made eye contact, and he made a beeline for me. And he approached me, and he says, Mike, you can't make it to my wedding? And I was shook, right? I was shook because, I don't know, like I knew that I could, but I chose not to. And I was also amazed because this guy had like 800 people at his wedding. It was one of the biggest weddings I'd ever been to. But he somehow remembered and he acknowledged that I wasn't going to attend. And he approached me. And so suddenly what had become just a digital click to say no became immensely personal. He cared that I didn't attend, that I wasn't going to attend. Now, I still didn't want to go, but I was shook. And you know what happened? I went. In that moment, he's like, you can't make it? And I was like, Oh, let me check. I, I did a fake check of my phone. I'm such a liar. God, I'm a sinner. And I was like, oh, I can make it. I, I, I'm going to make it, man. I, I'm going to make it. So I went. Stayed through the reception, gift and all. He didn't, he didn't come to my wedding, but I went to his, and so he's, I'm in the hole. Um, but you see, church, like, that's the power of a personal encounter, right? That's the difference between accepting or rejecting an idea versus responding to a person. See, when that happens, when there's an encounter, you and I, we have to make a real decision. You have to say yes or no to a person, and that's powerful. What if your life was lived like that before Christ? What if you understood that Jesus was speaking to you continually through his word, through his spirit? And what if in those moments, we would stop treating Jesus like an idea Stop treating Christianity and discipleship like religious rules and an ethic and start realizing that in those moments when our hearts are convicted, when light shines in our minds that we need to do, speak, and live differently, we would realize that we are either going to obey or disobey Jesus as a person. 
That makes discipleship real. That makes a relationship with Jesus meaningful and personal. This is what we see in the call of Christ, that Jesus is personally calling us to him, to trust him, to follow him. And this is a call of sheer grace. So how then must we respond to the call? Now, if we're honest, passages like this, it makes us uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. Peter and Andrew, uh, Peter is the other name of Simon, so Simon Peter, but Peter and Andrew, they dropped their nets. They left their jobs to follow Jesus. Like I emphasized in the reading, James and John literally left their father in a boat to follow Jesus. And even though this call of Christ, we know Jesus is worthy, we just sang it. We know it's a a gift of grace. None of us want to quit our jobs. None of us want to sell our possessions. None of us want to leave our families to follow Jesus. We admire the disciples for what they did. We're like, you guys are heroes. Like, Peter, you do you, right? Appreciate you. But we we don't want to do the same. We definitely hope and pray that Jesus doesn't expect us to do the same. So here's what we do. Rather than obey Jesus' call for us to follow him, rather than obey Jesus' call for us to repent, to change directions and trust in Jesus, we have distilled this call to fit our own preferences. We have reshaped it so that it is now more palatable. It fits. It fits into our Southern California lives. It fits into our, our, our convenient boxes. And this is why my introduction was that we have made discipleship synthetic. But as we see here in the call of the disciples, this road to faith, this road to discipleship, it passes through obedience to the call. There's no other way. What if Peter and Andrew had had ignored Jesus? Would they have been disciples? If John and James... Right? Just kind of like delayed and like, hey, let's make up excuses. Can, can, can I fit you in? Like, you know, in a couple years, once my dad passes away or I retire and then I'll really go hard for you. That's not what we see here in the Gospels. We are called to follow. And this means that we must exercise both faith and obedience. In reality, you cannot have one without the other. You see, friends, like this is a normal in our lives. In so many aspects of our lives, we see a necessary connection between faith and obedience, what you believe and what you do. For example, if we step out there on the street and we see a car coming at me or at us or at our children, what do we do? We see it, we know it, we believe it, and we do something. We get out of the way, we grab our kids, we step back. There's a natural connection between what we know and what we do, what we believe and how we act. If we go to the doctor and he tells you that you're sick and prescribes medication to treat your illness, what do you do? You take the medicine. Unless you don't believe your doctor and think that he or she is a quack, right? Then you get a second opinion. But if you believe and if you trust and you say, yeah, you're right. This this diagnosis is right. I believe the medicine will heal me. So you take it. Correspondence between faith and works what you believe and what you do, but we do something so dangerous and so different when it comes to Jesus. When it comes to following him, we've convinced ourselves. We've convinced one another that we can separate faith and works. We've convinced one another we can separate faith 
and obedience. And I believe I know how we got to this dangerous place. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor and martyr, he wrote a powerful book called The Call to Discipleship. The Call to Discipleship. And I just want to share uh, one of his uh, a quote with you. It's going to go up on the screen. It's kind of long. It's kind of long, but I'll uh, try to do a dynamic read and lay into the, the, the valuable parts. This is what Bonhoeffer writes. Two propositions are equally true. Only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. There is an essential unity between faith and obedience. In justification, there is a theological distinction. But it goes awry when we try and make a chronological distinction between faith and obedience and try to make obedience subsequent to faith. Because then the practical question arises, when must obedience begin? Such a good question, guys. When must obedience begin? For faith is only real when there is obedience, never without it. And faith only becomes faith in the act of obedience. Friends, I think that this might be one of the most important quotes on faith and obedience I've ever read. Now, it's true. There is a theological distinction between faith and obedience when it comes to justification. We are justified by faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone, okay? So that is absolutely true. And this means that we don't earn and obey our way into forgiveness, right? That our justification, that our, that our acceptance from God, it's purely a grace gift, okay? This is undeniable and echoed throughout the scriptures. But do you know what the Bible doesn't teach? The Bible doesn't teach, and the Bible never teaches, a chronological distinction between faith and obedience. That you guys can believe now and obey later. Are there any Bible verses that say that? Just believe now and then obey later, like layaway or something like that. Or that you can have faith apart from obedience. We know what James says. Faith apart from works is dead. But this is the lie that we tell ourselves. This is a lie that we have told others, right? That it's more important for us to believe in our hearts and in our minds than for us to obey, right? We have created this truncated version, this truncated view and system of following Jesus. Your heart, you have to believe. And then obedience, you just work that out later, right? Friends, that's a false dichotomy. It's nowhere in Scripture, you see, if we're honest, we all have an image of the Christian life we hope to one day live. We tell ourselves, one day, we're going to actually start reading the Bible. Probably not today, but one day, eventually. One day, uh, I'm going to have that stronger prayer life. I'm going to start waking up in the morning and actually praying. One day, I'm going to go on a, on a mission trip and, and, and serve others. One day, I'm going to reconcile with my parents. One day, I'm going to forgive my siblings. One day I'm going to tell my coworker or roommate about Jesus. One day I'm going to start teaching my kids about Jesus and not just tell them to wash their hands and do their homework, but I'm actually going to try family worship. But one day we're going to do that. But these things don't happen. Those days don't come. Why? Because we allow ourselves to delay our obedience. We allow ourselves to do that. But here's the question. When then will it begin? When will you start living as a follower of Jesus? Not by word, but by action. When must obedience begin? And the answer is this. It must begin when Jesus calls. 
When Jesus reveals himself to you, when Jesus through the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sins or, 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 or presses you towards actions and responses, that is when obedience must begin. When Jesus calls, only he who is obedient believes. And only he who believes is obedient. Simple test. Can you name one person in the Bible, one saint, actually not a person in the Bible, one saint in the scriptures who didn't live like that? One faithful man or woman in the Bible who believed but didn't obey, right? Who believed in God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, but then just delayed their obedience. You actually can't. Then what makes us think it's safe for us to live like this? What, what, what gives us the audacity to call ourselves followers and disciples of Jesus while we truncate our faith and our obedience? In fact, the Bible gives us plenty of examples of people who tried to delay their obedience and they're not spoken of in high terms. People who said they believed but didn't obey. Luke chapter 9, uh, Jesus is teaching on discipleship, and we have a series of personal encounters with Jesus and people who are considering this call to follow. And this is what Luke tells us. To another he said, this is Jesus speaking, follow me. But he said, this is the person, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus would say to us. This is what he said to people who are considering discipleship. He didn't make it more palatable and manageable. These are his words to people who are on the fence. What is Jesus' point? That we have to leave our jobs, families, and studies to follow Jesus? I, I don't think that that's the application today, relief. Rather, Jesus' point is this. Brothers and sisters, delay, delayed obedience is actually disobedience. Delayed obedience, all of our intentions, all of our intentions to start following and, and living for Christ and, and, and serving our, our, our neighbors and, and, and making much of the gospel, all those intentions that are unrealized, those are actually expressions of disobedience. Church, if you have heard Jesus calling you today or in your life, there are only two options. It's believe and obey or it's disobey and reject. How will you respond to his calling in your life? Would you take a moment in closing and just ask yourself, in what area of your life is Jesus calling you to obey? I'm sure there are so many in our lives. If we just do an inventory, we're like, yeah, I know. God's been calling me to reconcile with my family. God's been calling me to live with greater integrity when it comes to my business and how I run my finances. God's been calling me to purity in my relationship. So many things. And, and we know that God's been speaking to us and revealing himself to us and trying to direct us. Would you reconsider that? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Would you respond to the call of Christ to repent 
and believe in the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who speaks truth and grace into our lives. That you see all of our sin, all of our wretchedness, all of our idolatry, all of our disobedience. And you speak that truth into us. You you, you call us out. Your light shines in our darkness. And we thank you that we, we can be honest with you. And we're even more amazed that in spite of our sin, you do not cast us out. Instead, you sent your one and only beloved son to live the life we should have lived, to die in our place and rise in victory from the grave. We thank you that we are not condemned because you allow your son to be condemned in our place. Father, may we not simply just treat the gospel like an idea, not just treat the gospel like an ethic, but Lord, may we truly understand that the gospel is the power of salvation. The gospel transforms and changes our lives, that the gospel establishes your kingdom reign in our lives. And so God, would you be our God and would we be your people? May that reality begin to bear fruit in all of our lives. We thank you that you continually call us in grace. We thank you that we have the Holy Spirit as our helper, as our director. And so, Lord, I just want to pray for every brother and sister here who is considering whether they are called and ready to follow Jesus. Would you meet them in your grace? Jesus, would you personally make yourself known to them and give them life everlasting? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.